Welcome to the BookNet Canada podcast. I'm Ainsley Sparks, and this month, the last of 2019, we're bringing you the highlights from our top five most popular episodes. That's in the second half of the episode, but first we're going to be talking about the decade in review. What were the biggest trends in publishing? What were the biggest changes to the supply chain? And what happened at BookNet Canada? Here to tell us all about it is BookNet President and CEO, Noah Gunner. Hi, Ainsley. Hello, Noah. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Cast your mind back to 2010. Now imagine a highlight reel montage of the changes to the book industry from then to now. What trends emerged? What were the biggest issues in this past decade? Wow. 10 years is a long time. Uh, it's, been, it's been a busy 10 years, I think, both for the industry, for BookNet, for everyone. Uh, I think 10 years ago, in Canada anyway, we just had the launch of Kobo uh, in the Canadian marketplace. So that was a very significant, I think, change to uh, how publishers operated and how consumers discovered and read books. So I think that was a, a massive change. And, and around that time, obviously, we had uh, an expansion or continued growth of digital reading. So uh, ebooks at that point uh, were still fairly nascent in, in Canada. Um, Amazon had been had entered the country not long before that as a Amazon.ca. And then, as I mentioned, Kobo launched right around 2000, late 2009. I think it was uh, December 2009. So in 2010, we saw, started to see the growth of uh, e-readers, digital book buying, uh, digital book production, and workflow changes for publishers. And I think that was a, was a huge change uh, at that point. And so we saw a growth in e-book uh, reading that uh, went steeply up at the start, um, especially in kind of 2010 and 2011 and 2012. I think that that was a, a big, big, big change for uh, our publishing marketplace. And then uh, with that, um, there was all the technological changes that happened, primarily from the consumer side. And by that, I mean the huge growth in uh, tablets, uh, the huge growth in smartphones as uh, media consumption devices that really began in kind of 2009, 2010, 2011, and grew quickly to be, in some cases, the dominant way for people to consume media content, including books at some, in some cases. So we saw that consumer behavior really, really change at the start of the decade, and uh, it just continues to change all the time now, and I think that that's, uh, that's the case of uh, technology. And then from the publishing side, we saw publishers move really strongly and quickly in Canada to more of a digital workflow production model and the benefits that that brought, um, being able to adapt later in the decade uh, to audiobook productions and, and quicker ebook turnarounds and things like that um, really, really changed, I think, how publishers operate and how they deliver content out to readers. And also, I think you know, this may be a BookNet related thing, but the growth in data savviness amongst uh, industry participants, if I can put it that way, it probably began well before 2010, uh, 2009, but it continued to grow uh, through the decade a lot. And so that um, put a premium on getting data, analyzing data, using data to inform business decisions. Uh, that really grew up in the last decade, I think. And so there's not m much in the industry now that isn't data-driven to some degree, and I think that that uh, 
will continue to grow over the next few decades if it can continue to grow and if we can get the data. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's a huge, huge, huge change to how the businesses operate. And then I think from the, the landscape of the publishing industry in the, in the last decade, and related, this is also related to uh, the other things I mentioned, the technolo- technological changes and such, but uh, the huge growth in self-publishing in the last 10 years or so, we have seen more and more uh, self-publishing titles enter the marketplace. We've seen more and more authors who were traditionally published shift to a self-publishing model uh, once they've built up their brands, uh, or a hybrid model where they publish some books traditionally and some books self-published. And uh, that has, the last decade was, was massive for that. And it fundamentally changed how retailers operate, how consumers discover and what they read, and, and how publishers operate. So uh, both as kind of a change to the supply chain and a fundamental change to how the whole business operates. I think those are probably the biggest changes. Technology will always be have an impact. I'd, li- I'd love to be a prognosticator and look 10 years ahead and say that uh, there won't be any technological change or that I know exactly what's going to happen, but there's always stuff that we just don't know. So uh, we always had audiobooks, but this massive growth in audiobooks in the last a few years. I don't know that many people saw that coming. Um, so it's hard to know how consumers are going to change going forward. So that, that'll be one of the interesting challenges. I think it's why the industry is inter- interesting oftentimes is that the consumers change what they do. So we have to continue to look at them to see what's going on. Uh, Subject-wise, I, I don't know that there's been any massive changes in the subjects that get published and bought. We have seen a growth that began a little before 10 years ago, but really expanded in the last decade for the juvenile and YA areas. More books got started to get published into the YA category that may have been published into juvenile or, or traditional adult uh, fiction, for instance, in the last 10 years or so. And we've really seen a growth in that category as a category on its own, that the YA kind of titles. Um, we had that little blip in the middle of the decade with coloring books that seems to have gone away. But we, you know, we will see other blips. Uh, here in Canada, we've seen a large growth in the last couple of years in Indigenous publishing and Indigenous books, and I, it's, I think that that will continue over the next while. Um, and we've seen areas change in how the publishing and how the retail works in it. So fiction, many fiction categories now are digitally driven, uh, even if there are print books and digital books, but they are digitally driven. So if we look at science fiction and fantasy or thrillers, those are becoming more and more digitally driven uh, all the time. And we're seeing kind of a bounce back in some cases of the nonfiction titles in the last few years coming in print. So it, it just changes, I think, on what people want. It'll continue to change, I think. Yeah, and you were talking about following the consumer and seeing where they go. But as a consumer, like I don't think I would have predicted that by 2019 I'd be listening exclusively to audiobooks. Yeah. Like, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I think that uh, even yeah, even for my own habits, I'm as I've said many times, I'm just almost 100% digital reader now. But I don't think I was 10 years ago. So that's happened in the last decade for me. And I wonder how many other people have made that. You've mentioned audiobooks. Like how many people have made that unconscious decision to switch their behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's a challenge because I think it's oftentimes it's done unconsciously and so how do you tap into that, right? So. Can you talk a little bit about the biggest changes to the supply chain? Yeah, I think that uh, 
this change, again, it started a little bit before 10 years, but we've really seen it happen in the last 10 years here in Canada, where we went kind of from one supply chain for digital books, we've gone to multiple supply chains based on, I think, a little bit on consumer demand and a little bit on format, if those two things can be uncoupled from one another. And by that, I mean, we really have a supply chain that is uh, different for digital books than it is for print books. And even within the digital books, it's a little bit different between audiobooks and ebooks. So I think we've seen that change a lot, and that has really changed how publishers or content creators need to engage with the retailers and the consumers. So there's these multiple chains, uh, multiple consumer-driven chains that everyone needs to take, a, take part in. You know, 15 years ago, if I can go back into the previous decade, you just made your print book and shipped it out to retailers as a publisher or a distributor, and it sold. Now you have to make all these different formats. You have to engage with all these different actors, participants in the supply chain, uh, libraries, library wholesalers, uh, ebook retailers, traditional retailers, online retailers. So that that has fundamentally changed uh, the complexity of the supply chain and what people need to do. So I think that that. Uh, is a challenge. Maybe it's made people more efficient, um, but I'm not sure that that's the case. It's definitely made them have to be a little more savvy to consumer demand. So, so now it's, it's time to toot our own horn. Uh, what happened at BookNet over the past decade? Wow. Again, casting way back 10 years. So BookNet, I think, I believe this year is 17 years old. So the last 10 years, a decade is longer than half our life. But we, we've seen a lot of change, I think, in the last 10 years. We've launched a bunch of new products and services in that 10 years. So actually, most of the services we have now didn't even exist 10 years ago. So uh, BiblioShare was new in the last 10 years. So that's our bibliographic aggregation engine. Catalyst was new in the last 10 years. Lone Stars was new in the last 10 years. Um, all the add-ons to those products were pretty much new. And then two releases of sales data in that time uh, to our current version three of sales data, which was a massive change uh, for us and a big build. And then uh, launching late December, early January is our library data. And that brings another fundamental change to BookNet in the last 10 years is that uh, we added uh, public libraries in Canada as a stakeholder group. Um, we always were interested in that, and we added them as an important uh, channel or stakeholder group to engage with. And so we built products and brought them into the mix as a participant in the supply chain in Canada. So um, an important participant in the supply chain in Canada. So that was a big change. Uh, we changed offices a couple, at least once in that last 10 years, uh, and we grew. Uh, along with uh, the launching of all these new services in the last 10 years, um, our research division grew in that 10 years to include a huge focus on consumer because uh, we do think that that's really, really important that uh, the industry understands where the consumer is going and how they're behaving. Um, so all of that was done in the last 10 years and we added people to deliver those services to the market uh, at their behest. So I think in the last 10 years we've doubled in size and we've added more and more different roles, uh, library people, technical people, um, podcast people. <laughs> so uh, it, it continues, we continue to have to adapt uh, to changes in our own marketplace, just like any business does. And so we'll hopefully continue to do that. But it, it's been a busy 10 years from, from us as an organization, I think. So a good 10 years. 
So you talked about not being a prognosticator for consumer trends, but what about BookNet? Book what do you see coming? Well, I see a, a launch of our library data product uh, probably early into our next dec decade, very early into our next decade, I hope. Um, we continue to grow our research area. We think uh, being able to measure uh, what's going on uh, in the supply chain and measuring what's going on from the consumer, as I've already mentioned, from the consumer side is hugely important. And we see that as a huge function of, of this organization. So we continue to focus on that. I think we're going to grow that because that's what our demand, that's what our stakeholders, our consumers are demanding. So we'll continue to do that. Um, more data-driven projects, I hope. You know, we are continuing to focus on metadata uh, as a tool for discovery. Um, accessibility is a huge focus for this marketplace right now, so we're, we're involved in that. And standards development, and we think all of those are uh, fundamentally important and the areas that we will continue to focus on. So data, data, data. Over the next 10 years, uh, I sound like a broken record, uh, but it is all data-driven. We try and walk the talk, so we teach people to use data in their decisions and we try and use it for all of our decisions here where it makes sense to do so. And so uh, I see us capturing more data, more business decisions made on that data, more insights both for us and for the market whole based on that data. And so it'll be an interesting 10 years, I think. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And now we'll pass it over to Marketing Manager Selena Alvey for the Best of the BookNet podcast. To mark the end of the decade and five seasons of the BookNet Canada podcast, we're going to count down our five most popular episodes according to the number of listens and play you some of our favorite clips. In the fifth spot is part one of our innovative bookselling series, which came out this past summer to go along with our new What's in Store study on indie bookselling in Canada. In this clip, Carrie Clare, the literary matchmaker, author, and editor of the website 49th Shelf, talks about the spirit of ingenuity that sparked the Canlet-focused online bookstore she founded called Briny Books and its partnership with the brick-and-mortar bookstore Blue Heron Books in Uxbridge, Ontario. I am very inspired by how positively it's been received. I think there is an appetite for um, new and fresh things in book selling. And Shelley McBeth from Blue Heron knows that, and that's why her store is doing so well and why she's so well-known in the community, because she's willing to take risks and try new things. And so it was really exciting for me that she was willing to go along with this project. Um, and so now that it has been successful, I feel pretty positive about, about moving forward. And just just keep going and keep selling good books and I hope too that it inspires people to think more about where they buy their books what kind of books they buy it might make people who aren't reading as much as they want to be pick up a book and read it and all of those small actions I think um, come together and I think they can make a big difference next up in the fourth spot is an episode we did in July 2018 with fundraising consultant Raheem Lada who started an awards program for underrepresented writers in Canada called Shoot for the Moon. Here he is talking about the need for a program like this and how he got it off the ground. I saw um, Yilin Wang's post about racism can't and I, I'm sure you've seen it, of course, as well. I, first of all, I was horrified, just in terms of, you know, because you know privilege exists, you know, you run into it in your career every day, no matter what kind of professional you are, you know? I mean, and... It's so frustrating. I've had my fair share of it where opportunities have been denied um, for one reason or another. People can extrapolate from that. 
And I looked at that and I was mad, first of all. That was my first reaction, was like genuine anger. And then I thought, you know what? You have the opportunity to do something about that. So what is that? And I started thinking, of, and I literally just started taking advice from people. Um, friends versus just looking at the Twitter hashtag. And I was looking at everything. I was just like, well, why aren't there more, why is there not more money? Just, you know, whether it's an award or just grants for process, you know, things like that. A process was a very important thing for me in terms of dance-wise. So I was thinking, okay, you know, why don't we treat the time that a writer has even if they're just sitting around staring at a black page, blank page, which is going to happen a lot, why don't we treat that as valuable time to at least know, you know what, you're supported in one way or another. Um, so I figured, okay, um, budget out for three years. That was my first reaction. It was like, budget out for three years. How much money can you like, either have or will have? Like, look, at, look at the numbers. And then when I saw what was doable, just in terms of doing one award, I thought, okay, let's do it. I just announced it, and you know what? When I announced it, I looked at the numbers again. I'm like, well, we kind of have room for another. And there's I'm sorry, which one was the first one? So, um, that was Spark. So that was for uh, queer, trans, two spirited, Black, Indigenous persons of color. It, it literally the dialogue was well, a thousand dollars a month seems good. In the third spot is one of our earliest episodes. It's a talk given at our Tech Forum conference in 2015 by writer and activist Cory Doctorow where he describes three laws of information, age, creativity, freedom, and business that are woven deep into the fabric of the Internet's design, the functioning of markets, and the global system of regulation and trade agreements. It's heavy stuff. Now, of course, the DMCA's prohibition on breaking locks doesn't actually stop people from breaking locks. The easiest way to break a lock, if you're interested, is to just visit the Pirate Bay and download a copy of the work that has already had the lock removed from it. Um, but it does mean that uh, once Amazon or Apple or Adobe, and that's just the A's, puts its lock on your copyrighted work, you lose control over that work and over the customer who buys the work. That customer is now permanently bonded to the company that put the lock on your copyright. Because the only way to convert an iBook to a Google Play book or an Amazon Kindle book is to unlock it first. And the only company under all of these global laws that can authorize the conversion from an iBook to anything else is Apple. Just as only Google can authorize a conversion from Google Play to Amazon Video and so on and so on. Which means that inevitably, when you and your digital distributor have a negotiation in which your distributor wants a bigger share of the purchase price, you can't afford to turn them down. Because if you stop selling through Amazon and give discounts at Google to tempt your customers to convert their libraries and follow along with you, none of your best customers can take you up on the offer. Because the only way to go from Amazon to Google or Apple to Adobe is to dump all your purchased media and buy it again in a new format or maintain two separate ecosystems that you flip between depending on which retailer you bought it from. It's as though we passed a law that said that every time you bought a book from Chapters, you'd have to buy the bookcase from the brick. Now, you can understand why this would be good for the brick and good for Chapters, but it wouldn't be very good for the companies that are making the books. Now, this is not a hypothetical, this business where distributors get the whip hand when you put DRM on your works. All you have to do is think back last year to Hachette, when it had its uh, very famous and infamous dispute with Amazon, in which they had a disagreement about how much money should be going from one to the other. And Amazon locked, uh, uh, stopped selling Hachette's ebooks. 
and Hachette had to effectively capitulate to Amazon uh, because since the very first days, Hachette had been the publisher that was most aggressive about insisting that all of their works were sold with DRM. So its customers, more than any other publishers, had, uh, were locked to Amazon. And if it took its business elsewhere, those customers would remain in Amazon's wild garden. Now this is only going to get worse. There's another Amazon division that you're familiar with called Audible that doesn't just control uh, a small majority of all the ebooks, but actually controls 90% of the digital audiobook market. They're the, also the only audiobook distributor that will sell into iTunes. And unlike Amazon with its ebook business, um, uh, Audible will only allow you to sell through them if, uh, you put, uh, if you allow them to put their DRM on your works. This is not optional when it comes to Audible. And they've already started to put the screws to the audiobook publishers and the studios. And this won't let up. It's not going to get better. It's, uh, I'll bet you a testicle, although not one of mine, that very soon they'll start locking suppliers out of their store unless they agree to enormous concessions in the revenue split and the marketing of their books. After all, Amazon uh, does not staff all of its divisions with hyper-competitive, cutthroat business people, except for Audible, where they send their patchouli-scented info hippies. They have a normalized degree of sociopathy across all business units, and you can expect every one of them to be equally aggressive. Um, and it's not just Amazon. Think of what Apple did with its App Store, where it started off by saying, if you will collectively invest trillions of dollars in making us the dominant platform, we will only take 30% of the initial purchase price, and you can keep all the money you make after that. And as soon as they attained platform dominance, they told all of the people who'd made them into the dominant platform that from now on, they were also going to take 30% of every penny that those apps gener generated for them from now on. And suppliers have to cave. Because every serious audiobook customer, the 20% of customers who represent 80% of sales, will have sunk thousands of dollars into an investment that's locked to Amazon until Amazon decides to unlock it, which is to say forever. Anytime someone promises you that by locking up your stuff, they'll protect you, you can tell that they're in it for themselves if they won't give you the key. All right, it's time for our second most listened to episode of all time. Surprising perhaps no one, it's about a topic that continues to be popular in both the book and podcast spaces, true crime. Here's a clip of our own project manager, Monique Mongean, explaining why the genre holds a particular appeal for women. It's also interesting to note that many of these books, particularly the true crime memoirs, are written by and about women. Have you noticed that? Yes, yeah. I actually I have so many feelings about women and true crime. As a woman lover of true crime, yeah, it's really interesting because the, that Slate article, which I feel like we've talked about a lot so far, but it is so interesting and such mm -hmm. an interesting exploration of sort of true crime and books, um, is that the closer true crime kind of started to slide into memoir compared to how it used to be, which was a more sort of commercial and investigative journalism approach, is that when it got closer to memoir, more women were writing those stories. And it was kind of like for and about women. Um, so it was really interesting, this like female authored true crime narrative that was for women. And there's a lot of interesting studies and articles about women in true crime specifically. Yeah, so do we want to get into yes, it? Yes, okay. Please. What do those articles say? I mean, what is the like? Why? Why are there? Why is it so women focused? Yeah, women it's driven? it's interesting because there's a few kind of main prevailing theories. So one of them is that it is a a sort of cathartic narrative of crime where the perpetrator is held accountable. So you go on this kind of like 
journey with the narrator of the story where the crime is experienced and you get this like hit of adrenaline, you're excited, you're scared, it's terrifying, you're thrilled, there's suspense. And then when you go through the sort of back end, the justice part of it is that you eventually do see the perpetrator punished for their crime in some way. And that because women are so often the victims of crime or feel a fear that they may become a victim of a crime, they find that kind of like comforting in a way to see a sort of black and white depiction of crime and then punishment in the same way that a lot of women, I think, are interested in shows like CSI and Law and & Order and all of those shows that I definitely watched as I was like a young woman growing into an adult. Um, because there is this sort of sense that like you go on this horrifying journey and then all is right in the end and that there's a sort of comfort in that. Um, and then there was an interesting piece by Sachi Cole on BuzzFeed um, called Being Polite Often Gets Women Killed, where she actually recounts a situation where a listener of a true crime podcast called My Favorite Murder actually rescued another woman who was also a listener of My Favorite Murder. Um, she spotted a man hunched behind this woman's car in a parking lot, and they actually approached him together, and he ran away. And at the end, they sort of talked about how their, their listening of that podcast and kind of thinking about crime and being sort of constantly immersed in this culture of learning about crime made them feel more prepared to prevent it from happening to them. Wow. Yeah, it's so interesting. Georgia, one of the hosts of My Favorite Murder, actually says, like, we want to know all about it so it'll never happen to us. And now for the absolute all-time most popular episode of the BookNet Canada podcast. So far, anyway. It's our Demand for Diversity episode from just six months ago. In it, we shared highlights from our Demand for Diversity study and clips from TechFrom 2019 that discussed diversity in the Canadian book industry. We asked readers if they actively look for books about diverse topics or experiences or by diverse authors. We combined positive responses and discovered that, and you may have already heard this stat, 62% of readers are seeking out diverse books. One quarter of readers were neutral and only 12% answered in the negative. Let's dive deeper. How does this change when we segment between underrepresented and well-represented readers? Maybe unsurprisingly, underrepresented readers are overwhelmingly more interested in reading diverse authors and well-represented readers skew neutral. This divide is also shown when looking at whether readers seek out books that represent who they are. 35% of all readers do, while 34% are neutral. Underrepresented readers are more likely to do so with 45% in agreement and 35% being neutral. Given this interest from readers in seeking out diverse content, let's see what publishers and booksellers think about the demand for diverse books in the retail market. At another tech forum panel called Building Bridges Not Walls Successful Publishing and Retail Collaborations, booksellers, publishers, and agents got together to talk about their common goals, challenges, and successes. In this clip from the discussion, Morgan Young from Ampersand Sales Agency, Chris Hall from McNally Robinson Booksellers, Athmika Punja from Penguin Random House Canada, Megan Byers from Livres Babar Books, Laura Ash from Another Story Bookshop, and Ruth Linka from Orca Book Publishers talk about how diverse books are actually selling well. I'd like to advocate for something based on this morning's keynote address, and that is uh, Indigenous publishing. Um, when we set up our uh, store in the Forks, uh, it's 1,000 square feet. We have a 25,000 square foot store uh, in Winnipeg and, and in Saskatoon. We have about 45 shelves of indigenous books in the big stores. We put in 15 in the, uh, 
the thousand square foot store at the Forks. The Forks in Winnipeg is an, an ancient meeting site for indigenous people. So it felt right, it felt like something we do well. We do a lot of events with indigenous books. And the response has been amazing. Uh, the whole community is buying books from that store. Uh, families coming in and buying kids uh, indigenous books for, for their kids from all the communities of Winnipeg. I think it's a real um, necessity in this country and in our city in particular and our two cities because uh, Winnipeg and Saskatoon are on the, on the front edge of this, uh, of this uh, calamity. And um, so, yeah, there are many, many stories to be told uh, from that community and I would uh, urge everyone to tap into uh, the great storytellers that are coming from there. Sorry. Don't be sorry. I think that that's great. And I think that that's exactly why you want to have a conversation with your booksellers, because this is it's exactly the kind of feedback that we're looking for to take back to publishers in order to fulfill that kind of demand, which I think that they're doing. And that is a trend that we've heard um, started more in the West, and it's taken a little while for, um, for that for those kinds of books, books on indigenous topics by indigenous authors um, to really take off on, in Ontario anyways. And yeah. now we're really seeing it as well. It's, in, it's true. It's Absolutely. And a lot, a lot of our shelf space is taken up by local publishers. So they're from Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Right. They're the ones producing these things. So it just needs to spread from there. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things that I thought was interesting was someone had mentioned earlier about there's like a lack of data. And fair, there's, there's a lack of data because bookstores might not be taking a chance. but there actually are bookshops who are taking a chance. And maybe you're just looking at the data wrong. I mean, I don't know much about data, but I mean, <laughs> if, but if you look at the bookshops, that their mandate is to make sure that they have queer content, uh, black authors, LGBTQ, um, uh, trans, indigenous, and see how well they're doing, you'll realize that there is a need for that. There's mm -hmm. a want for that, and there's no risk. Like, no, there isn't. Like it's, it's not altruism. No, <laughs> I, that's I, 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 I just I don't understand. Thanks for listening to our podcast this year. We'll be back in 2020 with all new episodes. We look forward to talking to you then. You can find the links to all the episodes we mentioned in this episode in the show notes. I'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge that BookNet Canada staff, board, partners, and our makeshift podcast studio operate upon the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, the Anishinaabek, the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and Huron Indigenous Peoples, the original nations of this land. We endorse the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and support an ongoing shift from gatekeeping to space-making in the book industry. And we hope that our work, including this podcast, helps to create an environment that supports this shift. We'd also like to acknowledge the Government of Canada for their financial support to the Canada Book Fund. And of course, thanks to you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>